This is Parking in Bitterman Circle number 55 for August 31st, 2020. Aaron. Welcome to Parking in Bitterman Circle. Today we're going to be talking with Steve Chopper Borges about problem solving, pig guts, RT, and acts that start with a letter L. I hope you enjoy it. We are, we are now fully, now we have to watch what we say. Oh, okay. <laughs> We don't want to get canceled. Yeah, no problem with that. Uh, well, we'll just get cranking now. All the wasted time I created today. No worries. Um, here we go. Who are you and where are you from? I am Steve Chopper Borges, and I currently reside in Bullhead City, Arizona, but originally born and raised in Calexico, California. Um, I know what you do now, but uh, I know what you did then, too. There you go. Hey, did you get, when you were uh, coming up, did you have a chance to study the arts as a kid? They, you know, I mean, I remember before they took everything out of school except for the uh, metal detector parts. They, they, they had, I mean, they had music and art classes in the schools I went to. I never was in the band. I never did any of that stuff. I can play no musical instrument. And I can barely even play the stereo because you have to plug it in right. So I, I am, I'm, I was never that guy. I came from a really, really conservative agricultural upbringing. Uh, my dad ran a crop dusting service, and then he managed an airport. And so I, I grew up around agriculture, and I was a 4-H'er and an FFA guy, and. The first time I ever got turned on to any music was Bo Diddley and the Drifters came and played at the Calexico Armory, and it was a big deal. Yeah, so yeah. I, so I was like in, I think it was about seventh or eighth grade, and uh, we went and saw Bo Diddley and the Drifters at the Armory, and that's the first time I ever saw, you know, a rock band, and I, I, I knew I liked it from the get-go. Yeah, it's it's funny. I've been asking people as I've uh, gone along what was their first show, and uh, for a lot of people, it kind of was like hearing a bell for the first time. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. yep, sign me I, up. I, I liked it. I, I didn't have a chance to do much more. The next time I went to anything, I think I was a sophomore in high school, and I went and saw Credence Clearwater Revival at the San Diego Sports Arena, which was brand new, just opened, and it was the biggest, most luxurious, most awe-inspiring place ever in my life. Now you go there, it is a crummy little arena that's just like, oh my God, you know, it's not, you know, I mean, look, they, they've, they've, they've given it a facelift, and it's neat to go play there, but, you know, it's, it's a little tiny arena, for, and, you know, old, old school. <laughs> It's the yeah, same with me. I mean, I remember going to certain sheds and thinking I was playing, uh, you know, something in, you know, Rome or something. But no, mm -hmm. I, 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 the one that really sticks out to my mind is the uh, 
is the uh, was it Starwood, which uh, mm-hmm. in Nashville. Like, yeah, it seemed like it. It was it was huge when I first went there. And then then the second time I went there, I was like, wait a second, this is a miniature version. Yeah, th- this is not the big one I went to. No. <laughs> I, I actually went to Red Rocks, but even before I think they had the roof. And I remember thinking, this thing is great. And San, the San Diego Amphitheater that's behind the library there at, at, at San Diego State, mm-hmm. way back when it didn't have a roof or anything on it. And it was, you had to get Egyptians to like take piece by piece down the Ho Chi Minh Trail, right? And yeah. The, and I, remember, I remember going, God, this place is amazing. You know, and it's so great. Yeah. Then they let us use the elevator. Yeah. I I mean, if they had an elevator then, it wasn't working. And it and later on when it was supposed to work, it'd work on the in and it wouldn't work on the out. <laughs> it would get too tired during the day. It'd tire itself out and go, nah, I'm done. I'm, I'm all done with this. Yeah. Oh, but, boy. Yeah. So, some of those places are just... Uh... They really are an education, to say the least. It, you, know? It, you know, it just made a, a, a going forward as the shows got bigger and harder. The education of how hard it was in the old days to load in two forty-foot trusses and eighty park cans and stack a four-way PA and put in one riser and some bank gear. I mean, just because of the way you had to get it to the stage and back. Mm. So the rest of it, they're like backing trucks up to docks and loading in six trucks child's play <laughs> you know it was it was dead easy you know when when i first when i first went to the whatever the star whatever it was in dallas boy that was a, that was i think the first one i went to that had everywhere where you could just back up a truck and go through big roll up doors i just went what an innovation you know man this cool <laughs> right and and then you know, so it became standard, kind of, and 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 even and they just it started getting easier and easier and easier and easier as they got the grids better and better and better and all that kind of junk. But yeah, yeah, I, some of those places you sit there and you're complaining about how deep you know it's your truck is ten feet from the upstage edge of your stage, mm-hmm. and you're complaining because there's not enough room to. to yeah, you want to. Yeah, they made they made, they didn't make the dock big enough. To, you have to play Chinese checkers on the way out. Oh, ducks. Oh, darn. You know, you have to move two cases to get your case through. And that, you can't stack your cases up high enough on the dock, right, and all that stuff. But, yeah, it, 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 after a while, you had to and, – and that's the part that I sort of would tell people sometimes. When you have to think up reasons to complain about, oh, you know, the scrambled eggs weren't the way I like them in the morning or whatever. It's just like, really, dude? I mean, this is really, this is your problem today. I said, you should sit down, get down on your knees and thank your lucky stars, that that's your problem. And my, my theory in those days, and I don't know, I probably didn't ever, but I used to tell people, guys that would get, you know, and listen, touring's hard and, and it get in, in being in close proximity, even with people you like, it's hard over periods of time, but when it really get to be a complaint fest, I'd go, guys, you know what? Just pretend like you're, you know, in a satellite and look down at the earth and look down at, you know, at that time I'd say, you know, look down at Vietnam or Iraq or 
wherever and you know look at these places the middle east and look at what's going on there i said then look down here at you know uh bohunk amphitheater and look at our problems i said let's make a little comparison to a problem problem there's nobody shooting at you (laughs) there's nobody you know you get to go have a nice hot meal you might not like it but you've got one (laughs) you know you get to take a shower afterwards get into your private bunk and go to sleep. I said, our problems are really, really, really little, you know? So we and, and, in perspective. And yet it seems that uh, a majority of our job out there is, uh, is making sure that all of those details are, are taken care of for other people. And that, that is the whole job. Yeah. That, 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 that is, that is it because every day you, there's no, there's not really a do over, you know, every day is every day. And, and really for me, somebody told me very early on, you know, with the troops group, they said, you know, you can, you can learn to be a, a great roadie, a good guitar roadie, and you can, or a great sound guy or, or, you know, lighting guy. They, they said, you always have work if you're good at what you do. And you'll you'll get good jobs. They, but they said, if you can learn to be the problem solver and to see the overall thing and get it in and out, he goes, then you're going to be, you know, middle level management and you'll be knocked up the up the scale a, a little bit. And and I took that to heart and I did it. But I might have done it. A little too good because, man, at some point, there are very many times I went, man, I, I wish I knew a little bit more about consoles and and band gear because I, I, you know, with the tubes, I did props and special effects and was the stage manager. And and I, I did stuff like that right from the beginning. And I never because I never played an instrument, I didn't know anything about them. Mm-hmm. And but I did go right up the scale and that was a pretty involved show. They had the dancers and the props and the, we had video early on and we had a lot of elements and all that held me in good stead for the rest of my career. And, and after doing the tubes and trying to put that sort of show into some small venues and crowd all the crap in and get it in and out in time and get all the people on and off and up and down and on the stage and, so for me, it really did hold me in good stead as I went up the, you know, the, the level and, and, and magnitude of shows. I was already used to solving a lot of different sorts of issues. I mean, I, I, I've been told by guys, and I don't know that to be a fact, but I was one of the first guys because we had a, a, a rider in 1975 and 76 that I that I had to advance. Why not? Be, not because of you know anything like sound or lights or crap like that. We had you know dead easy sounding lights. There's you know two forty foot trusses on on genie lifts. You know, but we had a bunch of gags and stuff, and they had to buy me you know uh, fifteen pounds of pig guts and and you know fake stage blood and you know, junk, CO2 fire extinguishers and the the things that, you know, you'd ask for fire extinguishers and they'd give you chemical ones, you know, so 
you'd have to be explicit in what you wanted, you know, dry ice and all that kind of crap. So I started, I had a, I had a sheet even in the seventies and I'd call promoters and they go, what do you, what do you, what do you call? And we got, you know, we got your writer and I go, hang them on. Let's just talk about it here for a minute. Mm-hmm. And so I'd have to go through all that stuff. And that also moving forward, as I got into more sophisticated stuff that held me in good stead of really having personal one-on-one relationships with local promoter reps to, to go over shows with. And, and I, so I was used to doing it from the get go from the right when I started and that, you know, and I, and I maintained that all the way through right till the end, even when I ended with Steely Dan, yes, a lot more of it was done via the internet. Absolutely. You know, I would, I would, I would have the answer to a bunch of the questions, you know, I'd have a sheet that they'd fill out and stuff that I used to ask and do it by hand forever. Lollapalooza, I did it all by hand. I call people and I advanced Lollapalooza and those were long involved advances because those were out in fields in the middle of nowhere with eight acts and then two more stages. And so those advances would sometimes, well, not sometimes, those advances would take days. You, you didn't do those in a phone call. Towards the end, you know, after there was so much stuff on the internet, I could advance a show, even a fairly sophisticated arena show with 8, 10, 12 trucks. I could do it in a couple hours on mm-hmm. the phone, two or three hours. But there was usually a series of those because we do 90% of it. And then I'd get callbacks and confirmations. You know, you have to fine tune it. And sometimes little things would change, but but by and large, once the internet came into play as much as it did, I could I could do a pretty big, sophisticated show in one kind of fairly long phone call. Uh, but yeah, so it was it was uh, it was interesting. Interest it was interesting in the beginning, and the growth through the whole thing was definitely interesting, but. I, I was very, I mean, I was, you know, I, I was really, really lucky that, you know, I went to school in the Bay Area. I started with a band in little clubs that were nothing, getting paid 200 bucks a night, helping the roadies. Bill Graham fell in love with them. We got to start doing Bill Graham dates when we started in 73, opening for Led Zeppelin at Kizar. Mm-hmm. And it and it and it went up in sort of leaps and bounds like that. So I got to watch the Bill Graham organization, who were pretty well organized, and to a lot of large extent, wrote a lot of the book on ma- making like show. It, it went from dances into like concerts and multi-act concerts, you know, days on the green and stuff like that, with trailers and multiple acts and this and that. So I was really fortunate that I got to be on the inside of that and grow as I, as, as my career grew, I was right in it and I could just, I got to watch it and see it. I, it wasn't mysterious ever for me. So every job I ever got, people go, Hey, can you go do this? I would always say, yeah, even if I never done it before, because mm-hmm. because my on the job training was, was pretty quick and easy. You know, even Lollapalooza, Lollapalooza was a little bit tough because it had a bunch of 
really strange stuff. And it had stuff that I hadn't done much, i.e. outdoor staging and roofs and things like that. I was not well versed in that. And I got really, really lucky in that I got RT and Peyton who had worked for Mountain and they were my guys. And they, and RT in particular, really educated me in, in all of that stuff. So by the time I got to Luis Miguel, I knew what I was talking about in, in advancing roofs and stages and, and multiple roofs and stages, leapfrogging ahead and doing all that kind of business. Mm -hmm. But that I really owe in large part, especially to RT. He, he really, he, he took me by the hand and led me through it. Well, that's, that's it. I mean, you know, we find that we get, we get around these teams that people sort of gather. I mean, you get mm -hmm. a good, I get a good working situation or someone, you know, cause it's funny in the, in the, the conversations I've had with some of the other guys, uh, a lot of people were saying that you were a real helpful person, a mentor of sorts, you know, to, to them while they were on the road. And for the, you know, the first, I mean, I, I go back, I look at these guys and I go, I can't, of course they were. Of course they were showing up and working with you at, at this point in their careers, you know? I mean, but like, uh, you know, Jerry Manuel and, and, and Kevin O'Connor, I've had them on and, and uh, mm -hmm. they were saying that uh, they, they learned a lot from you. And um, I, you know, when it comes to mentors and stuff, I mean, I, I do think of people like RT who, who just sort of gave me a, uh, gave me a framework to work within, you know, mm -hmm. and, um, he was, he was so entertaining to, to work around sometimes. He was so good. His sense of humor was unparalleled and so dry and kind of rough on the edges. But when mm -hmm. you got it, it was so freaking funny. Oh yeah. It was just like, Oh my God, did he really just say that? <laughs> and look at him like a big dumb biker. Uh -uh. Well read. So big vocabulary, smart. And, and what I, one of the big things I got from RT was he was just undefeatable. You, you could, you couldn't stop him. And he, he had that esprit de corps and, in, and instilled it in everyone. I mean, the first year I worked with him, when I, he sent me his resume uh, when I was putting together Lollapalooza. It was the third year Lollapalooza went out. And I was putting together a staff and he sent me a resume and I saw it, but I didn't know him. You know, I, 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 it was a cold call, so to speak. And Frank Stetler mm -hmm. called me and said, Hey, did you get a, uh, did you get a, a resume from Randy Townsend? I went, yeah. I said, I, I'm already thinking about this other guy that I've worked with. You know, and I'm, I am looking for one more guy. And he, and he said, you, you take him. And I knew Frank for years as a promoter rep, mm -hmm. a long rapport. And, and I really trusted his He goes, he's the guy you need for this. I said, Frank, this is a special situation. You know, this is a bunch of club bands with guys that don't know what's going on. Does he have a thick skin? I mean, and can he get along with everybody? He goes, You'll meet him. He's rough as a cob, but he can get along with everybody, and he's the guy you want. I went, I'm going to trust you on this, brother, but you better not be wrong. Boy, was he not wrong. <laughs> he, he was exactly right. The other guy, Duffy, who's a great friend of mine and 
continued to be a friend of mine for years, and I did several tours with him, became the subordinate. And he's the first guy I hired. I thought it was going to be the other way around. It wasn't at all. But RT broke his leg the second day of the tour, the second load-in of the tour. Oh, man. Broke his leg. Uh, and I stand... You know, we we did him the hospital. He comes back in a walking boot, but and does the loadout. I said, "Dude, you, you got to stay off your foot and stuff." No, nah, it's no big deal. You know, RT. Yeah, I'm forget about it. Next day, he's there, sick. He's doing the load. I'm going, RT. You know, you might have to go home. You might. You know, this is eighteen-hour days, eight acts. I said, I don't want to be the guy that cripples you for life. You know, I don't want, I'm not, I don't, I, you know, I love your stick to this, but I might need to get somebody else. He goes, no, you don't need to get anybody else. You tell me when it's falling down, then you can get somebody else. I went, all right, bro. But, you know, I'm, I'm worried and I'm worried for you. You know, I mean, you're doing a great job. Don't get me wrong here. And he did it for like two weeks. And then one night I saw him, we were in the, you know, doing the shower routine. He takes his boot off his back of his calf looked like hamburger from working and rubbing and i just went what the fuck is that and he goes ah damn thing rubs on my leg i said well yeah obviously that's what it does but that's got to be wrong so i got a doctor there the next day and he wrapped it and put some stuff on it and said you got to change these every day and so we got a whole new routine he wasn't doing anything he was just putting the boot on and working for 16 hours and yeah. just rub the skin and the hair down to the meat you know and i just went uh-uh no that that ain't it <laughs> but anyhow yeah that he was he, he was he was really a strong strong player i mean i'd be honest with you i didn't do from from 1993 when we first worked together until 2008 or something when i first retired from luis miguel and i think he even came back for my first comeback with him i don't remember maybe not but definitely for that long i think i only did two or three uh, acts tours that he didn't do he was my stage manager for everything, mm-hmm. everything. I, and I had a, a little group, a little core of guys that I did most of the stuff with, but I did everything with Randy. Mm-hmm. He was the, you know, he was just the go-to guy. Yeah. I have to agree with you there. Yeah. Uh, I, I think I remember one time, um, after all of this, where we went out and we were going to do a benefit at somebody's house in the Hamptons. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, of course, the backline guys show up and we're all mumbling and sputtering and getting to this. And, oh, great, another rich person show. That's all we mm-hmm. need. And, yeah. And we noticed this troll come out from underneath the, the stage. Uh, and And by God, if it wasn't him, once again... <laughs> A mountain gig of some sort, uh-huh. and uh, and that of course, uh, Mike K was with me. So I mean, the two of us said, "Okay, days okay. Up. we're, we're gonna okay be fine." Game <laughs> on. Yeah. Um. You know, it's funny because you you really do 
covered that period of time when the technology started to really get interesting from 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 the bare bones starts to uh you know the the first moving lights to i mean all of these other stuff you really got an opportunity to see a lot of this stuff and uh and and use it with the people you were working for um it's funny. I think the first time I worked with you was '92 with uh, with Little Feet. Yep. Was that, that little? Be, that would be true. That, and Little Man. Remember Little Man. Idea, little Man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That would be the first time. Yeah. It's uh, it's funny because uh, I mean, in talking with, I've been talking to people, not trying not to make these these uh, these interviews to be anything like uh, you know a real war out, out doing war stories back to back to back, right. but. You know, I made an That'd exception. It'd be easy to get into that, right? Yeah. Well, it'd, it'd, it'd be a little boring after a while. It's interesting to us, but mm-hmm. might be boring for most people. Yeah. Too much inside baseball, you know. Exactly. Exactly. But, uh, but you know, at the same time, you know, it's, 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 it's these kinds of, uh, events that, that we get to be a part of, which sort of, shape what the rest of our career is going to be like, you know, how we're, how we handle this is going to make a, is going to make a difference. You know, there are plenty of people I've worked with where I've got to see the whole DEFCON 4 kind of uh, approach to, uh, you know, making a show happen. And that it, it can be pretty, pretty ridiculous. And you just leave with nothing but bruised feelings and, and a bad taste in your mouth and, you know, it's so much more than uh, one of the guys that I started out with, uh, Bill Cope, which was, he was one of those guys who taught me the, uh, you know, honey rather than vinegar. You know, you mm-hmm. just, you just got to, you know, make everybody feel like uh, they're important, but they're, they, they need to do their job too, you know? Yep. But uh, it's impo- it's bigger than any single component and that's for sure. And as it gets bigger, it gets even more so. You cannot, and some guys who try to, from from my position, who try to micromanage those things, I just think they step on their own dick too often, and it just gets to be overbearing, and you don't. I, I had a theory, and my theory was, listen, if you're telling everybody what to do all day, nobody's solving any problem. Therefore, they're not as valuable to you as they might be, and I got to the point later on in my career where I would even go so far if it wasn't going to sink the ship and I maybe saw somebody making a little something I wouldn't do, let's just say, I would let it go for a minute. I'd monitor it from afar. And at some point I might say, what would you think about this? But I would rather have them muddle their way through it, come out the other end of the tunnel, solve the problem and, and have the insight. So therefore they now know what to do when that happens. They don't even have to come to me. They are, they got, they got it. Right. And that for me made, gave me more valuable guys around me, you know, guys who could truly solve problems in the right way, in a timely fashion. It, it could be their own way. And most of the time, technically, I don't know how to solve their problems. If I know better how to solve their technical problems than they do, I got the wrong guy. Right, exactly. You know, I, I need to have guys who are problem solvers in their whatever their field is. And all I can do for them 
is say, if you have a problem that is starting to go nowhere, you can come to me and go, look, here's what's going down. I need help in this direction or that direction. And those are the guys to me that are valuable. And I, and I said, well, what would you do? Nine times out of 10, I just do what they suggest because, because I do. That's the way I do it. But right. if I truly think I have a better way, I'll at least go, well, what if we did this? But I need the input. I could never have been a production manager because I, I, I don't know enough about it. <laughs> I don't know enough about production, you know, from the, from the inside out of it. I am not that guy. So I need guys that are knowledgeable. I need guys that are self-starters. I need guys that can solve problems. And I'll give them the opportunity to solve that problem as long as I can and still keep my time schedule. You know what I mean? If that makes any sense. Absolutely. So I always approached my production management from that. And my, my job was to give my guys what they needed, protect them from artists who were gruesome whenever possible and, and, and try to be as supportive. And I was never the guy who said, we're all got to come here and suffer together. No, I want everybody to get as much rest as they can to come in when they need to, to do their job in a timely fashion and be as fresh as possible for the next thing. Now, if things go haywire, I also need to be able to go to those guys and go, everything's haywire. I need all hands on deck and we all got to do this because whatever, something went wrong. Mm -hmm. We all got to be lighting guys today and we got to be sound guys today. And, you know, so that was the way I approached it and knock on wood, it, it worked for me to more or less of an extent, you know, I, I, I got through 41 years of it. So I guess it worked to some extent. Yeah. Um, you know, I, it's funny. I, I put together a lot of these questions that I have. Um, I put together almost five years ago when I was mm-hmm. sort of formulating this, this little experiment that I'm doing. Uh-huh. And I was thinking of people like you and RT and, and the kind of approach that's taken by, by different groups. I mean, small and large, you know, I mean, I, enough people listening to me know that I've gone from, you know, working for Metallica for eight years straight for, to the Indigo Girls and going from uh, living inside of a sea can Instead of, uh, you know, and then all of a sudden I'm on a bus, which is about the same size with a little tiny trailer worth of gear. Uh-huh. And, uh, and the same things are important then and now. Right. You know, and it, it just translates across the board. And, uh, you know, I've gone through that with other pr- production people, like the, the idea of uh, logistics versus the show. Like I've gotten into, a, uh, done a couple of shows where um, the person in charge didn't really care what's going on on stage. I mean, they were, they were treating it like a, like an industrial or something. I mean, uh, Mike, Michael K was absolutely right in the, the one situation where he said, you know, to them, it's like they're putting a brand new Ford F-150 on stage and, and that's the show and the, the music and the interaction between the musicians and, and all the things that occur there are really a non-issue which I thought was a very dangerous attitude to have. You know? Some people get into the thought that the show just gets in the way of the load in and the load out. We right. used to say that as a joke. 
Yeah, but that was, but but some guys took that to heart and felt that way when the reality of it is you don't have a job for very long unless that product that you put up there is making those guys out there go wow. Mm-hmm. They have to. There has to be wow. There has to be wow moments. Yeah. And when the wow moments go away for them, your job goes away for you. So yeah. that's what you got to kind of remember. It's not about you. It's not about how tired you are or aren't. It's not about how much you didn't like the catering today. It's kind of about the, you know, the, the kids, the vermin, as the verm, as our friend Artie would say. It's kind of about that really you know to a lesser well not even to a lesser maybe to an a different percentage it's it's about the promoter too and the product you deliver to them because if you if you're for shit the word gets around yeah it it, it gets around so it's it's all of the above you know you 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 are you're providing a service and you're providing a service with a very finite timeline with a lot of money involved. Yeah. And so you better, and a lot of the money involved is relative. $50,000 is a lot of money at some level, you know, uh, $5 million is always a lot of money, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So to that extent, and, you know, but the 5 million is coming from, from the people out there. So to them, they don't care if it's five cents or five dollars. And that's what I used to tell a lot of people when they'd go, hey, you know, when when promoters would come to me and go, hey, the show's not doing very good. And, you know, we want to cut, you know, a hundred dollars out of the 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 bus stock budget. I just I plain ass tell them, I said, if you're having trouble with the show. You know, you don't come to me. You go to the agent. Mm-hmm. You tell the agent you need 50 grand back. Me, I got to do the same thing if one person comes to the show. Right. It doesn't change for me or my guys. Nothing changes. But I mean, we've, we've so seen. So therefore, am I going to say okay to you? No, I'm saying yeah. not okay. If you want to take it over my head to the mm-hmm. agent and go, Chopper's not being reasonable. He won't cut a hundred bucks out of the out of the bus budget i said i said go ahead and do it and i'll go to the mattresses with the agents too i don't mind being up front with them because yeah. i firmly believe that you're you're going about it in the wrong way you're that, that hundred bucks doesn't change your bottom line by a no. tenth of a percent it no. doesn't change a thing but it does change for us we live here we live yeah. out here mm-hmm. and that and i had that i mean i perfected that conversation over the years to where I'd finally make them feel small enough that they would usually not do it. Sometimes I lost. I mean, sometimes they just did it. They didn't even, you know, they just did it nefariously, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and then what do you do? But that was, that was always a point for me that I just, I didn't buy into that approach. And, and after a while, most of them knew, not to even approach me with shit like that. If they were going to screw us, they had to do it silently. Don't ask Chopper. He won't, he won't say do it. He'll mm-hmm. say no. Because I did, I did it on a regular basis for people that didn't know me, I guess, for a lot of years. Well, but, I mean, we, we're all finding out right now how important the audience is. 
Yeah. Yeah. We, how about it? <laughs> yeah. Really finding out right now. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's intense. I mean, uh, you know, looking at some of the numbers and some of the projections that people have looked at for live events all over the world. And, uh, you know, now we're seeing people pushing road cases through the streets, uh, you know, and it, and I remember when I first saw that video, I was like, wow, I mean, that's us, you know, mm -hmm. that's, that's part of what we're dealing with, you know, um, finish this sentence, a road crew travels on its blank. On its stomach. I mean, you have to have good food. You can have a lot of stuff go wrong in the day. If the food's good, the day goes good. Mm -hmm. If the food is terrible and you have the best day, it, it you, the vibe is gone. It's all mm -hmm. gone. You you have to get you have to get the catering right, and you know and then it's kind of go flow. It flutters downhill from there to labor, you know, staging, air conditioning, mm -hmm. but food is the first one. Yeah, I mean it's uh, especially when we get into those those. Uh, those large troops. Cause I mean, I ended up coming out, I was there in 97, the last rolling Lollapalooza. Right. The last one, one that toured. Right. Yeah. And, uh, I, I had a very interesting perspective in that I started off working with one of the bands and then they went away. And then the next thing I know is that you're, you're calling me to come in and, and, right. uh, and help out. So I got to be on the production side of things. And, you know that it's funny. I mean, like uh, like some of the other groups that I've had the the good fortune of of working with, like uh, uh, Paul Simon. Um, I these are people that I still talk to on a regular basis. These are people that I I mean it those kind of uh, relationships, that kind of camaraderie that the, the people that you the tours that you put together and the people that you put together still you know, it's, it's mighty strong, you know, mm -hmm. um, I've, I, I always thought that, uh, you know, some people would put together groups and they'd have no idea who any, anybody was, you know, and, and it would just be, um, just painful to, to, to deal with some of the people that just really didn't operate the way that you do, you know, it, um, it can be certainly. What's the most important quality in a crew person to you? They're, they're, well, number one, you have to have the ability to tour, meaning you need to be able to get along. You can overcome a lot of shortcomings. The next one is they need to be proficient technically and physically on every level, whatever they're meant to be doing. Right. And that, that proficiency changes from department to department. I mean, it, no, you have to be good at whatever it is, but the ability to do stuff, the technical ability, you know, it changes. You, you know, you have to have a lot more computer savvy to, you know, run automated lighting than you do uh, if you're the uh, catering assistant. You know, that doesn't mean the catering assistant doesn't need to be on the ball, but they don't need they need a different sort. They need a different skill set. But number one is tour ability. There's a lot of guys with the, with the technical ability to go out and do it. There's not a lot, of, there's not a whole lot of guys that can tour. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and when I talk about tour, 
you know, one end of the spectrum are guys like Mark Haney, who are just a joy to be around on a tour and nothing but help. And then there's guys that are quiet, you know, assassins and they do their job good and they're never in the way and, and they are what they are. And that's fine too. I, li- I like those kind of guys, <clears throat> but there are guys that are, you know, they're a little too loud. They're a little too impressed with themselves and they, you know, I, I don't, I don't like those sort of, I guess, I don't know if it's selfish is the right word, but it seems like selfish is what it is. And I, and I, and I, and I've had to tell guys usually from vendors more than usually from vendors because they seem to change all that. And I'd take them aside. And I used to try to not ever dress people down in front of other people. And I don't dress them down by yelling at them. I just say, look, you know, but I, I have had to take guys aside and go, if you don't like the way I run things, or if you don't like the way things are going around here, you need to let me know and you should go to, um, get on another tour, but you can't keep doing whatever it is. I don't like about you, <laughs> you know, which is mainly just being a stick in the mud, you know, cause I got a pretty thick and I can deal with a lot of guff. You know, I, 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 I give everybody enough rope to hang themselves, but if they start to hang themselves, I'm not going to leave them dangling in the tree. They I'll call their boss and say, during the next, I, I, I think I only sent three or four guys home in the middle of a leg. They were so bad, but I would, in between legs, I would say, I need a new guy. Next yeah. leg. That, that guy didn't work out, you know, for whatever the reason was. Yeah. I mean, that, I mean, I've been there. I mean, that was one of the questions was when it goes bad, do you take it or you walk, you know? Uh, I mean, is it worth the confrontation or in, in certain situations I know where I just go, well, if they could ask me back, I'm going to say no. Right. That's right. it. I'm, you know? d- I'm done. Yeah. That's but all you, can- you can't. But in our business, you can't leave people high and dry. No you way. Them a lot of notice to get and, and even to the point of training their your replacement. But when you're done, once you put a number on it, you're done. You know, mm-hmm. you you've had it. So you might as well go at the right moment then walk off in the middle of a tour because that gets around too you don't want you don't want that no that, yeah that gets no. around and is bad for your career and the other one is jumping ship for better offers which sometimes i had to pass up some pretty lucrative offers because i had already said i was going to do something mm-hmm. and that one's hard you know when you're out there working for your 1750 and somebody says they'll give you five grand <laughs> you just go if i start doing this now mm-hmm. it it won't it won't bode well for me in the big picture in the long run so i never i never really i never did it yeah but that's i mean once again the big picture that's what i i start looking at the people we work with and and think that that is like when you can finally find people who are in these in these roles and get them to actually think about the big picture as opposed to I, 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 uh, I was thinking about them as being kind of a, a, a collection of coordinated loners. You know, it's like you, you don't really have a teamwork thing, but you've got a couple of little guys that kind of keep to themselves. They do what they do. And, um, and then they surprise you. And all of a sudden they they, they will do the most selfless, you know, 
team-based kind of uh, moves sure. and, and, uh, and, and surprise all of you, you know, I mean, because they have, they've got the idea. This is what I do. This is my part of what I do. And, uh, and you know, it doesn't amount to a hill of beans, you know, at the end of the day. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, what's your proudest moment? Been. And I mean, this is, can either be professional or personal. If, do you have a, a, a anything that sort of looms high on the list of accomplishments? One of my, certainly, I have a lot of personal high moments. You know, with kids and you know things like that. That that's a different thing than we're talking about now. But one of the things that I was probably most proud of was the memorial that I put together with Steve McFadden for Marshall at the Fillmore and the way that went off and turned out. And that was, that was a, a high point for me spiritually of, of stuff I've done in the rock business and not just for the way the event happened, but the way it filtered to his sister and from his sister's, to his parents who basically said, we don't want anything to do with any of Marshall's memorials. You do whatever you want. Cause I called them to ask them permission. They said, it does, what, whatever you want to do, it doesn't make any difference to us. We're not, we're not doing anything because, you know, he was not held in high esteem by his folks and he was held in the lowest of esteem by his dad. And his dad was, be getting the onset of dementia by the time Marshall died. But when the two daughters who came to the event saw it, saw the whole thing, the uplink, all the business that went around it and the, you know, and the, the cremating him and putting the ashes in bindles and giving them to people to take to other venues and the video of him talking about doing that, that actually, you know, by hook or by crook, by luck, uh, he had done that to the camera with Susie and she had, she still had the tape. Mm -hmm. So we got the show where he said, you know, I want to have a party and I want my ashes to be put into bindles and spread around by my friends to all the places that I loved during my life. And your husband is just the guy to do it. And, and then it actually happened. So, yeah. That was that was pretty big, you know, and it really was neat. And it was neat that the tubes came forward and did it because I wasn't sure about that part, mm-hmm. even though he was around in the very early days. He was an 18 year old kid who mm-hmm. used to come to the back door and then, you know, and then he'd push a few cases. He was never very, he was ne- let's face it, he was never very good at any of it, but he wanted to be around it. He had a big heart. He had a heart of gold. He talked way too much, talked to himself in and out of gigs on the most regular of basis, but people did like him and that outpouring and all the people that came, some pretty big heavy hitters in the business came to that thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Big guys at Live Nation and from vendors to merch and guys like that, you know, they all showed up for it and his sisters knew it and they found out about it and told his dad and they said that that their dad who had, you know, was sort of had the onset of dementia. They said he had a lucid moment 
And he looked at them and, and had a little tear in his eye. And he goes, you know, I don't think I ever really knew my son because he was always knocking him. You never, you know, you never made anything of yourself. You know, you, you, you've never had a job. You know, he was, his dad was very success oriented. His dad was the CEO of the Pebble Beach Corporation and American Express. And he was a big high roller, right? And Marshall was always from the earth because he was Marshall, right? Yeah. But late in life, maybe you learn that your wealth can be measured in your friends as well as in your bank account. And at the end of the day, which one's more important? You yeah. Know, where, where, did, where, at the final accounting, which one really counts? So, yeah. So for me, that was, that was a big, a, a big thing. I've had a lot of, you know, highlights professionally, the Walden Woods benefits at Madison square garden with Henley and Billy Joel and, Seeger and Bonnie Raid and you know and the and the ones with Roger Waters and Neil Young and all, those were those were big cool events for a good cause those were highlights mm-hmm. you know those were the first Eagles reunions too right ever happened were those Walton Woods benefits so th- those were those were pretty highlights um, I, I I've had lots of you know, musical heights. I'll tell you what, working with Little Feet was one of the musical highlights of my career. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. They were maybe even the best band I ever worked for. And I worked for a few pretty good bands, but boy, oh boy, uh, every night, their worst night, they were like the best players I ever saw, I think. Mm-hmm. And effortlessly, seemingly, you know, and, and, you know, I always thought the Tubes were a fantastic musical group. But Little Feet set themselves apart. Steely Dan was a fabulous band. A lot of them studio guys, but what a great band that oh, yeah. was also. Um, you know, Midnight Oil on a given night where it's the stunning steamroller rock band. Um, yeah, so I, I had a lot of musical highlight up doing the uh, Smile Tour with Brian. That that was big and what a great band that was. And when you saw that guy's music portfolio all in a two and a half hour show right in a row, it was overwhelming. And he played, you know, this was later on and there was a guy that played with no pro tools. All of it was absolutely positively live Mm -hmm. down to the little, little percussion instruments on the smile record, the little tinkly bell, all of it was live. And that, that was neat. The first, I did the first Fogarty tour where he started playing Creedence stuff again, cause he got his publishing back. Nice, yeah. And that was a super band with T-Burn, T-Bone Burnett and, and John Molo on drums. And it was a really an all, an all-star Nashville guys, mm-hmm. the killer band. Mm-hmm. killer band and Fogarty but he, he was way better than I thought he was going to be and I didn't realize that he played all the lead guitar and all that stuff he was a pretty good guitar player I was uh, I was I was in the right place at the right time to hear the conversation between him and uh, Springsteen I was on stage and during a rehearsal uh-huh. and he he informed me uh, informed us all 
that uh, sort of timing wise that all of that credence stuff all happened within an 18 month period. All those hits, all those songs. I thought it was 20 months, but yeah, 18 months. He wrote like 30 top 10 hits or something. I know. It's just and when amazing. you hear that guy's catalog all in one show, you go, oh, I forgot about that one. Mm-hmm. He has so many recognizable, you know, radio heavy songs. Mm-hmm. And you forget, you know. You, know, you you think about Proud Mary and a couple of them, you know, and Fortunate Son, but there are there's like 15, I think, top 20 charting yeah. songs. And he does them in his show. And then he does center field and a couple of his, you know, solo projects. And mm-hmm. that's the show. It's hit after hit after hit after. There's no filler. It's all killer, no filler. Yeah, I was funny. I, I felt the same way when I came to visit you on Henley during his uh, high, one of his high points. Yeah, the end, was, of the, the end of the Innocence Tour. Yeah. That thing was fantastic. They, yeah. They were all fantastic. I mean, yeah. It was good. Good stuff. I got, I was really lucky, you know. I was really lucky, and then I had to pay my penance by working for Luis Miguel for like 20 years. Now, you got you to be honest with me now. How many times did you go back to it? I went, oh, I went back to it over and over and over again. The money was fantastic. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was a horror for it, no doubt. It was, I, I made, I would say I made 90% of the money I made in my entire career with Luis Miguel. No one paid me like that guy paid me. I, he'd fire me and I'd go back for more money. Every time I went back, I, I raised, I upped the ante. Yep. And it just got, it got, it got, it got to be pretty fun all the way at the end. And then I also became, you know, kind of one of the vendors. I started the staging company. So I was a vendor mm-hmm. at the same time. And I had lights out on it because I had a lighting company. So I'd always have a couple of moving instruments. I always felt that as long as I could provide the service at or below market rate, then I didn't, then it, I could look at myself in the mirror and go, I'm doing the right thing. Cause I give myself the best service. Of exactly. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm the production manager, but it also got hard sometimes when shit would, anything would go wrong. Sometimes it got expensive for me as a vendor to make sure it was right because I couldn't afford to not have it be right. Mm-hmm. Whereas, uh, you know, you could kind of fudge and go around the corner if it was just Joe Blow. But I couldn't, you know, for the no, same I mean, reason, I couldn't look myself in the eye. And one time, one time early on, kind of early on, not early, early on, but in about 2002 or three, we were doing a huge, a huge tour with them in Mexico. And one of the drivers got pissed off at his boss and had a stage and went and parked it in a grove of trees and went and got drunk. And we were missing one of the three stages and we were leapfrogging them in front of each other. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden I'm staring at, I'm the vendor and I don't know where the stage I'm staring at a no show. Mm-hmm. I'm rerouting trucks from all over the place to get pieces to the puzzle. And luckily they finally found it. It was lost for like over 48 hours. And when your schedule is that tight, 48 hours feels like 48 days. Oh, yeah. It was as nerve-wracking 
as it could possibly get from for me personally. Mm-hmm. What do I do? Fire myself? <laughs> sue myself? Sue myself? <laughs> uh, well, that's that's a uh, it's a neat trick I've seen a few people do. Yeah, God, it was it was miserable. I'm here to tell you, it was yeah. really hard. Yeah, I mean, I I actually wandered back a few times there too. I think I what was it? Uh, several times. I did nine did ninety nine where yeah. uh, all the stuff was coming got buried in Caracas and we had to wait yeah. until we got all that gear where where we where it got and they got it got stormed in and mm-hmm. then they had they had the floods and all that stuff it washed a sea container out into the ocean you know ours didn't but right. it washed a bunch of it went right around our sea containers on both sides and washed shit out in the ocean and ours were right on the island in the middle that didn't get washed out. Yeah, well, I guess that's uh, uh, traveling heavy actually worked out to your advantage for a change. Wow. Yeah, that was some pretty nasty stuff. Yeah, it was nasty. And, and yeah, it's actually very funny. I did a uh, one-off in the Dominican Republic with you guys, and that was – I was literally sitting on the, on the tarmac in, in Florida – uh, waiting for my flight to take off and it was delayed and it was delayed. And I had gotten a message from someone who said that George Travis was trying to get through to me. And, uh, you know, they're going to walking around in those days when they were saying, you have to turn your phone off. You have to click your phone and put it in your bag. And, and I'm like, wait a second. I don't want, and, and I sat there and I was about to put it away for the last time and it rang. And, uh, and it was George. And he's like, uh, so what are you up to? <laughs> <laughs> and that turned into, I don't know, six or seven years on Springsteen. So, you know, I mean, every now and then you get those timing, oh, yeah. uh, those wonderful timing moments that occur. Yeah. I, I, I had one of those a- after a long hiatus from Luis Miguel when they had gone to, uh, oh, what's his name? The stage manager for, for McCartney. Uh, hmm. uh, I can't remember his name. Anyhow, yeah. he he became the production manager, and I was doing uh, Juanes, I, who was a really fun and good act to do. I, I he's a great guy and mm-hmm. good band, rock and band. He's Rockatola, and we were, we did Spain and we did the U.S. and we were getting ready to go down and do South America, and I was. I was sitting in Mexico City because I had put together some stuff to take out of Mexico City, some consoles and stuff like that. And I get a I, I'm sitting in the in the airport. Or actually I was I was at the I was I was at doing the work and I get a call going, Juanis has fired his manager and he's canceling the tour. I went, What? He said, tour's off. I said, just like that, every all the guys we have that are supposed to be um, working and you're just mm-hmm. knocking it on the head and all the vendors and stuff. Yep. I said, oh, okay, if that's what you're going to do. And I, I said, it, I said, I'm going to call the travel agent and get myself a flight. I said, yeah, call the travel agent, flight home. So I did. I'm sitting waiting for my plane and I get a call from Ascensi. I get a, it's actually from Azoff Management because Ascensi went to work for Azoff. They called up and said, "Hey, we, LM owes us a bunch of money, and we're putting together uh, a bunch a bunch of dates 
built around the opening of the big arena in Mexico City, which is like a million dollars a night. We're going to fill in the blanks, but it's Brazil, Chile, Costa Rica, Santa Domingo. It's like all flyboy crap, you know? They said, we want to do it on the total cheap and we're going to just do extra pallets on planes and no, no, no charters. And I, I went, well, let me, I said, they said, are you available to do it? And I went, when is it? They said, it's in like two and a half weeks, but don't worry. It's already all set up. As soon as management tells you, don't worry, it's already all set up, mm-hmm. but they want you to do it. That's a bad sign. Yeah. So I call Scotty's the guy's name who works for works for uh, uh, McCartney. He would, mm-hmm. he had been the production manager. He was getting all kinds of tooth surgery and he couldn't go. Right. So uh, I call him up. I said, "What's what's the plan?" He goes, "Yeah, I'm doing you know call Rocket. You know we're doing it on extra pallets. We're just taking a minimum of band gear around." I called them up and I said, "Do you know about this plan? What what plan?" I said that they. They think they're going to get pallets on the on the commercial airlines, you know, to fly like 21 pieces of band gear around. Everything else is rented. I said, look at this schedule. And I and I said, well, hang on a minute. And I and I called Dan Preston because I had always dealt with Dan and he somebody else had been talking with Scotty. I don't even remember who it was. And I said, Dan, this doesn't look right. And he goes, there's no way. He said, this absolutely won't happen. He goes, those pallets on those planes are filled up with medicine and flowers with accounts that that they buy that extra space every day. You'll Mm -hmm. be lucky to get a piece or two on. Never all of it at the same time. Right. So I said, what if I have two sets of that stuff? He goes, then you might be able to do it. So that's what we did. I said, you need a second set of band gear and consoles and you know microphones Mm -hmm. i said then we can do it that's going to put the price up i said you're going to give the money back if you don't do it you know you're just physically not going to do the shows you can't do this you know so they finally agreed with me and it all went well and and, uh so they just hired me back then and that was when i did my last run of shows 2011 to 2015 then we were supposed to go back out in 2017 and i was just going to do production rehearsals no 2000 yeah 2016 maybe i don't remember whatever it was Mm -hmm. anyhow i was going to put together the production go down and do production rehearsals and then cut it loose to dave maxwell anyhow that that part all all didn't happen but Lucky enough, when I got, you know, dumped, I got a call. They said, ah, we don't want you to do rehearsals. We're fine. We'll do it without you. I said, really? Okay. I get a call from Opie, and I ended up doing all the labor stuff for the Havana Rolling Stones show. Right. So I was down there for over a month, and that that was pretty cool. Uh-huh. That, that's the biggest thing I ever did. Mm-hmm. It was a 30-day build, me and 32 Mexican guys. 70 C containers, three seven forty sevens. It was big and bad. Mm-hmm. It was cool though. I always wanted to know who ended up getting the job of uh, building the bridge between the hotel and the stage in Rio on that tour. I don't know. 
I don't know that part, but that yeah, crazy. It was, yeah, it was. Uh, it was. It was a cool. It was a cool thing to do. Mm-hmm. It, it was, and being in Havana for a month, I mean, I, I would never. I don't. I would certainly not go back as a tourist. I would go back maybe to do a one-off work. Yeah. But it's tough there, man. There's nothing there. There's less than nothing. Yeah. Well. It's it's been kind of remarkable that uh, you know between stuff that you've done Central and South America now we're seeing a, we're doing a lot of stuff uh, in the Eastern Bloc countries that uh, mm-hmm. you know really weren't weren't people weren't really going to anymore and you know it, you're seeing resources not not only uh, gear but you're starting to see people who who actually know what they're doing in oh, some yeah. of these places. Yeah. Oh, and, and it's come so far, you know, Mexico, it, it caught up pretty quick and you could get stuff and we, and we could bring stuff from America, but Central America has come a long, long ways. And so is South Argentina, Chile, and Brazil are all very good now, production wise. Now, video cameras, switching and lenses, that's the part that I would always take you know but consoles and stuff like that mm-hmm. maybe you'd, you'd use consoles from here because that's what you were used to but they've got that stuff down there now and it's and it's pretty darn good even central america between costa rica and guatemala and a little bit of panama there's enough gear i mean I've, I've done i did iron maiden down there i was actually about to do the the kiss retirement tour when the COVID thing hit we were supposed to be down there doing it but i've done iron maiden i've done uh, uh guns and roses i've done stuff I, I work for the promoter in el salvador and you just get gear from all over central america and they're used to doing it so if you get all the gear available in the whole region you can do a big show like that down there now and before you couldn't even come close you had to bring it and you had to travel it in between borders for every show so you couldn't ever do any sort of back to back even pretend right going to because of all the borders and all the bullshit but uh now you kind of you kind of can to some extent now you can you can do that you can there's enough gear to do two shows if you get all of it from the whole region so i guess the real big question we have here now is what the hell happened to our business i mean the COVID thing is, it, I mean, like, I don't think anybody ever doubted that the audience would be the problem. And right now, they're the problem, you know. And oh. nobody's going to assume, uh, accept the liability. No one's going to no. uh, pull the trigger and say go. I mean, some we have some small uh, experiments that have happened in the past few weeks, but mm-hmm. they don't look like they worked out too well. And it's the and it's the it will be the absolute last thing to come back, as far as I can tell. Stadium dates mm-hmm. will be the last, or maybe arenas because it's indoors probably. But the the big shows they'll be the last thing to happen. I think they'll I think they'll do casino table things prior to that, right? Where you can do some social distancing and blah 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 blah, right? Theaters, you know, probably you can do batches of four seats with four in between and you know patchwork it in but how do you make money doing that you can't you can't make a theater with a half a house you can't make any money 
you know, and and the and you in the bands touring, they can't tour and make money playing half theaters, you know, playing 15, 1500 seats. No, not unless you're going to charge three hundred dollars a ticket for everybody. And and they're not people aren't going to do that. Right. People aren't going to go to it. That's the other thing. Not only can they not get together, but everybody's out of dough. That's right. So how's that? You know, it's the double whammy. Yeah. You, you know, it's the triple whammy. How How is it going to work? I don't know. And I don't see it. I mean, I guess once there's the vaccine, people will feel like it's okay, you know, to go do the whole full Monty, at which point I guess they'll, they'll fire it up. And they're talking about having it, you know, by the end of the year, first of next year. So there might be a touring schedule next summer. Yeah. I think that potentially could happen, but what, you know, where are the, where, where are the mid-level vendors at? I think they're gone. Right. Yeah. I think they're gone. And I think they're gone for good. Yeah. There's a good chance of that. I think they're gone. So how does that work for the competition? And, 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 you know, and can Claire, Claire brothers and upstaging do everybody all at the same time? Probably not, yeah. <laughs> you know? So how are you going to pick and choose? You know, well, big deep pockets are going to be able to survive, but they can't do everybody. And the other people, I think, are are gone. Yeah, you know, potentially. I'm I'm actually thinking that some of these smaller acts are going to be a lot better off than any of the larger acts I agree. because they I can do smaller venues and and they can control. use existing sound and lights. Right, and they will, and they'll be happy to do it. I got a feeling that some of these bigger acts are going to scale it down and be happy to do it. Yeah, you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Something's yeah. better than nothing. Right, you know, so we may have seen the last hurrah of uh, of the, uh, of over- the mega mega dough. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Plus, plus, who other than Electronica? Maybe uh, who is going to fill a stadium now? The only people filling stadiums mainly are the graybeards. Yeah, I, I mean, who's who's out there that's going to really fill these places up right now? Right, I. I don't know. And it might be speak because I'm out of the loop, but I can't think of a bunch that of, of new artists or even relatively new artists that are going to go out and fill stadiums up. It's amazing that we had the stuff like Rammstein and, and some of those things that were booked for this year, which mm-hmm. would have been really amazing to see a German band doing a stadium tour in the United States. I mean, uh, they, they, they they would have done it a couple of years ago, but for some reason they didn't want to come to the States, but they played stadiums all through Latin America. Cause we, mm-hmm. we used our roof for some of their dates. Mm-hmm. We did some Ramstein dates in South America and Mexico, I think. And they were they're, they're that big and they could probably do it in the States too. I mean, I don't know that for a fact, but probably they're pretty well, big. Yeah. I, I mean, but I mean, we're also talking bread and circus kind of, uh, Right. Entertainment. Right. Um, I mean, for us to actually see great bands like the bands we got a chance to work for, uh, you know, existing in a larger uh, format. I don't I don't think it's the, I'm, I'm convinced we're all going to turn into video techs. We're all going to be hanging video wall for the last part of our career. I'll tell you something interesting. It's been a couple of years ago now. I got a call from the John Cameron camp. Avatar, John Cameron, you know, the, the TV, the movie. James, Cam- James Cameron. Okay. Yeah. James? Yeah. 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 James Cameron, whatever his name yeah. is. 
<laughs> and they said, we need you to put together a budget because we want to put together a super group and, and, and rehearse it for a few days. It, well, it's going to rehearse for however long it's going to rehearse, you know, it, you know, at a rehearsal hall, but then we're going to do a production rehearsal at an arena and we're going to do a show with some super group and we're going to uplink it and play holograms in 10 other cities. We have the technology that the holograms with lighting and stuff, you, you won't be able to, it'll be like the real people are there pretty much. We have it down that far. And, and so they said, put, put together a budget for it. So I said, okay, well, you know, you want me to put together a budget for the whole thing? Because that 10 different venues, that's, that's, that's a big budget. They said, right. no, do it for right now. Do it for the one, you know, the, the rehearsals and the one, and then we'll use a lot of those figures for the other 10, right? Mm-hmm. That, well, you can kind of do that. It'll give you a ballpark anyhow. So I, I, I started working on it, and I was putting it together, just writing, you know, doing notes. I mean, I, I didn't put that much time into it. I probably put eight or ten hours into it, and they called off the jam. But they were going to try to put together this, you know, instead of just uplinking it and watching it on a screen, they were going to try to uplink it and and have sound and lights and concert production but holograms the problem i think is that to uplink it to do it live i think if you recorded it maybe you could do the hologram technology and that might be more realistic than trying to uplink it i think it might get too tricky now we were just having the conversation about it the other day where it's you know the whole idea of the energy exchange that happens between a band and an audience and how the band will give the energy to the audience. The audience throws it back at the band and they double mm-hmm. down and, you know, there's more, more going on out front there. Um, you know, I think that that's going to be something that uh, at, le- at least in, in our case, we're not going to see on a, on a scale like we, we did during the past 20 years. I think you're right. And, and, and obviously for us, I mean, all of our heroes are in their sixties and seventies like me. Mm-hmm. So, so that, but I think once again, I think, I think it's cyclical. I, I, I don't, I'm not going to say it's not ever going to happen again. Cause I think it might, I think it's short-sighted and maybe, you know, narcissistic to think that, Oh, we've seen the heyday and it's never going to return. Nah, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe like, well, it'll never be what we, we saw the birth of it. We saw, we rode the swell and the cresting of the big, wave right mm-hmm. that'll never happen again because it already happened yeah. will we get back to really big acts I, I think we will but will they be rock acts that play or will they be big extravaganzas on pro tools you know i mean i i'm not sure i, I don't know what the the next trend is because it's kids old people don't want to go to stadiums no oh and put themselves through it they won't do it and sit out in the in the grass and in the heat all day long. No, they won't do it. Mm-hmm. They want to go see their old favorites in Vegas and pay $300 to have a nice seat, you know, and go back to their nice hotel room Yeah, and do that once every three years, instead of going 
to like five stadium dates over the summer, right? We used to go to all, I used to go to all of them. I was mad for it when yep. I was a kid. <laughs> so I think that, that, that scene might've, might've passed its day. I think there will be arena acts again, you know, who go and, and after all and said and done might be, you know, and I, I think it probably is even financially smarter to do two or three arena dates than to do a stadium date. Money wise, I think you make more money. Right after all said and done. And I think there's, they've learned that. And that's sort of, that's sort of what made the sheds popular for a while was you could get 18,000 people with a lot less production, but now the production is so important. You can't get a big arena show in a shed. You can't get that width and breadth and height and everything else. So it kind of come a little bit full. The sheds are a little bit out of vogue. And, and and once again, it's also as the crowd got older, people, you know, there's 7,000 seats, but there's 10,000 out in the lawn. Well, people our age don't want to sit in the lawn. No. They're too old. They can't get up. <laughs> they can't sit up off the grass, right? So that that's sort of sheds have kind of peaked maybe, you know. Mm-hmm. But I, I still think they're a good idea. And I think I think sheds would be great for the resurgence, you know, for the post COVID because it's outside, mm-hmm. you could social distance it. You could even social distance it out in the lawn. You could have, you know, <clears throat> there's a lot of things to be said for that as a comeback rather than trying to get into arenas and all that sort of malarkey. Yeah. So you might see a little resurgence in the shed business. I think. Post- well, it's going to be interesting. Uh, you know, the uh, last two summers that we were working, I was with James Taylor at Tanglewood, which mm-hmm. on Fourth of July, which is his little tradition there. Right. Just drive up the drive up the street to the uh, to the venue and knock uh-huh. one out. Uh-huh. But uh, but I mean, I can see people gathering for something like that. But uh, I, I you know I think the the, the big hef- the heavy duty days of the uh, the sweaty uh, um, arena rock concerts might be over. Uh, I know. I mean, I, I, I'm trying to be as positive as everybody, you know, I mean, it's just, we, I just haven't seen any, you know, there's no uh, magic bullet uh, just yet. And, and I don't think, and I don't see the talent out there. They'll no. make it work. No, you're right. You're I mean, right. there are, you know, there are the, the muses and the radio heads and the, and the, I mean, there are a few rock bands out there, you know, that can do arena business. Mm-hmm. I think that aren't, that aren't in their seventies yet. They're yeah. in their high mid to high fifties or whatever they are. Right. Right. They got years left in them. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Imagine dragon. I mean, I think there's a few acts that can play arenas that aren't, 60 and 70 but it's funny because i mean some of the music i'm listening to now uh, wasn't possible you know five ten years ago these guys are really great players they're playing heavy music it's kind of thing that's kind of interesting to see in a live situation because mm-hmm. they are so good and because it the the the, the energy it generates mm-hmm. um but uh you know just that whole weeding process that we saw of, of people going and doing the little uh, secondary and tertiary markets until they could get up to being in a, 
in some of the big towns and bigger venues. I, you know, I just don't know. I mean, I think there, well, I think there are people making, making art. People are still making art. It's just a matter of what the commerce part of it is it going to be able to be acceptable for both the promoter and the act and the audience. I, I agree. And I think a lot of what has been somewhat of a downturn is, you know, in the past, the record sales, you know, generating such a market piece that it paid and it behooved record labels and it really behooved promoters to support. They used to pay tour support to get right. these acts out there. So those acts would go out as the opening act, the mid bill act and work their way up into headlining arenas. That ship sailed. Right. You, you haven't seen that for years now, really, you know, and, and it doesn't really work to go up through a, a club and, and, and an Indian casino because it doesn't carry. They're not seeing you in that big venue. That's one of the things that held the tubes back is they never, nobody wanted the tubes to support them. They didn't want to play after the tubes in an arena. So big bands, they, it was, they, we were like kryptonite mm-hmm. and we never got that opportunity to be a bead compared to other big acts that played in arenas or play much in arenas. We played arenas in Europe and Canada, but we played a very few arenas in America mm-hmm. where we could sell 10,500 tickets doing three nights at a theater. We couldn't sell, we could sell the same 3,500 doing one night in an arena not because the same people went all the way it's because so many people went, well, we, we don't want to go see him there. It's not the same. And right. it, it never graduated itself mm-hmm. the, back in those days, which it needed to do at that time. And they used to, they used to nurture the groups and nurture, you know, the levels. And that hasn't happened for years. Well, the, 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 the record companies were the venture capitalists for, for the music business. You know, they'd, they'd pony up some money and they'd wait and see if they got any return from it. Right. And, 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 now, and now big acts, they don't make any money off albums and music anymore. So it's evenings with. They want all the dough. They don't want to pay a lot of money to some play, somebody else unless – they they can't fill the place and they need to you know do a hot dog tour with two or three acts in a shed you know and yeah well i mean the the package deals uh always have some sort of attraction to the, the middle middle america but mm-hmm. um you know i also think that uh some of those guys have already gone to the well too many times on on that one. Oh yeah and uh you know and i've done a couple of those and it's you know, okay. You know, how many every- times can you see Peter Frampton and Sticks and you know and that 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 bunch? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, they've done that like every summer, forever. And they still, I mean, those guys still make a living playing county fairs and stuff, but they're C and D markets. Yeah, they're not not big picture, and and therefore those guys, they're not. They're not paying guys like you and I the kind of money we want to get either no. for, the same re- for the same reason. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. There's, you can't get blood from a turnip, you know? No, nope, you can't. It's not there. It's not there. Well, you know, one of, one of the things that I really felt about doing this little project was uh, the opportunity to, 
pay my respects to to the people that I worked with and the people I worked around. Uh-huh. And you know, and you know, there was the you know, both you and RT were on the same list, right side by side there, you know, and, well, and we I were still, side by side for a long time. I know. I was <laughs> And uh, and it was my sh- sheer procrastination that lost me my chance at doing it with him, uh, you know, because I was, just was not ready to to do what I'm doing now. Yeah, well, the whole project wasn't ready, so yeah, he, he just died too soon. You didn't you didn't start too late. Yeah, he died. He died soon. way way too soon. Way too soon. Yeah. Well, my friend, thank you so much for spending some time with me. Hey, hey, thanks for thinking of me, and thanks for calling me. It was fun. It was fun to go a little bit down memory lane. Yeah. Oh, it's good. And I hope to I hope to see you sometime sooner than later. And once this ever gets fired up and if I see the Indigo girls around, I'll I'll blast up to Las Vegas and come and visit you. We'll we'll have a nice tea. Sounds like a good thing. All right, brother. Thanks for All the right. call. I look forward to seeing you. Take Thanks care for- now. Bye. Bye.